That's a good idea. You may also want to put your finger in Joshua chapter 6. And you may even want to go look at First Chronicles chapter 2. Uh, and Matthew and Hebrew. No, I'm kidding. We're, we're going to be all around. Uh, this morning, I'm stepping out of my comfort zone. And I'm preaching kind of in a completely different format than I'm used to. Uh, normally, you guys have heard me talk about expository preaching. Expository preaching... The, the bread and butter of expository preaching, if you will, is when you go verse by verse through a text and expose, that's what expository means, you expose the meaning of the text within its context. But you can also do an expository preaching based around one person, one person's life, their story. But the, the key to do that is to draw in all that the scriptures tell us about that one person. And ultimately, all of scripture points us to the person of Christ, right? So the question becomes, what does the Bible tell us about person A, and how does person A get us to Jesus? And so that's kind of the, the hope today as we do this, and I know we do have a couple of kids with us, so if you've seen the screen, if you've looked in your bulletin, you know I'm talking about Rahab. And normally when we talk about Rahab, we either talk about her profession in relation to her genealogy, right? Who, who she's related to. But like I said, we do have some kids with us. We might have kids watching online. So we're going to G-rate this as much as possible today, if that's all right with you all. Um, we're going to kind of just talk about Rahab. And when I talk about her, her profession, we'll just say she's a woman of low moral responsibility and move forward. All right? Now, while we do have the main text, like I said, we're going to be bouncing around quite a bit, so just be ready for that too. And what the Bible does tell us about Rahab, to be frank, is not a lot. We're not given much detail about this woman, yet she holds a very, very high position within Scripture. Um, it's is it, is it always, is it? Uh, wow, <laughs> I just went all over the place. What was that? As it is with Scripture... It is going to take us to Christ. Now, like I said, we, we see her pop up in the New Testament in the first five verses. In Matthew 1.5, it's the genealogy of Jesus. Now, genealogies, when you're, when you're reading them many times, your eyes may glaze over because they get really boring. But bear with me as we do this today, okay? Verse 5 in Matthew 1 tells us, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Okay, salmon is not a fish. That's a man's name, all right? He's not part of your sushi or anything like that. We need to understand something with that statement alone, especially when it comes to the New Testament writers. Rahab lived at the early onset of the time of the book of Joshua. Boaz lived towards the end of the time of the judges. Boaz was the great-grandfather to David. Okay, Boaz's son's name was Obed, Obed father Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. We all know who David is, King David, right? But there's this gap in time there. We don't know how much, but there is a gap in the time between Salmon and Boaz. Now that's going to depend, A, upon the age of, of Rahab and the age of Boaz. But more than really what we're seeing is a, a gap in this genealogy that's not mentioning certain people within that family line. New Testament writers would do that in genealogies because they're very selective of their frame of time 
in order to help their readers understand a theological point as well as be able to memorize the data that's given to them. So they summarize it without bogging it down with all the other great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers in that genealogy. In other words, Salmon was possibly a great-great-great-great-grandfather with a few other greats thrown in there. We don't know how many exactly, and it's not really that big of a point to dwell on. But we should know that there is no Hebrew word for grandfather. There's no Hebrew word for grandmother. There is a word now, Saba in Hebrew, which sounds very similar to Abba, right? You've all heard Abba, father. Well, that word really is is not Hebrew even for grandpa. Here's why. When you read in Exodus 10, chapter 6, you see translations what may read grandfather. But really, if you're reading it in Hebrew, it's father's father. And they don't go farther than that whenever they're writing out a genealogy or explaining a family. And actually, the Hebrew is av-av or ab-ab, or abba-abba, right? So the condensed thing is he's a grandfather, but there's there's families in that gap. Uh, we don't know, like I said, we just don't know how many greats there were between Boaz and Salmon. But we also have to ask, well, okay, who's this Salmon fella, right? What do we know about him? The answer is, not a lot. In Luke's genealogy, he does not mention Rahab, but he mentions Salmon. So we have to ask, this guy, there has to be something about him, right? Well, really, if we're looking at the context of Scripture around his life, the great, he's not some great warrior. He's not some great king or diplomat. He just happens to be in the line of Judah. And the greatest thing he does that I could find in all of Scripture, he marries Rahab. Okay, so what do we learn about this guy? What, what else is there? Well, when we begin to really study him, what we find is Salmon goes by another name. He has a second name, much like other people in Scripture often do. He goes by the name Salma, and that's where we go to 1 Chronicles chapter 2. 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 51 says, Salma fathered, get this, who's his first son? Not Boaz. Bethlehem. So the name of his son is the name of the city where David, the line of kings, are going to come from. The name of the place where Jesus is born. Huh, that's kind of interesting. Hold on a second, though. Let's read the full context because you guys know I'm kind of big on context. Selma's descendants Bethlehem, the Netophathites, Atroth, Beth, Joab. And half the Manahathites, the Zorites. This is verses 54 and 55 in 1 Chronicles 2. The families of scribes who lived in Jabez. The Tirathites, the Shimeathites, the Sukkothites. These are the Kenites who came from Hamath and the father of Rechab's family. Are your eyes glazed over? Rechab, who's that? Another way to spell Rahab. Even in the Old Testament, Salmon is known as Rahab's husband. There's something pretty awesome about this lady, something pretty great about her that makes her set aside. And not only was she ancestor to Jesus and David, she's the ancestor to the person who built Bethlehem, named the city after himself, right? And this, these other guys, the Netophathites, well, for example, that's actually a city three miles south of Jerusalem. That's not a whole tribe of 
foreigners. These are people within Israel. The Atroph Beth Joab. Do you know what that means? The crowns of the house of Joab. Huh. I seem to remember this guy from the family of David, his sister's son named Joab, who's a big player in the time of the kings. What she, what, what the scripture is telling us is she's not just the great, 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 so on grandmother to David. She's the producer of the royal family and all their relatives. The people at the king's court can all say, I'm related to Rahab. You do 23andMe in the king's court of Israel, Rahab comes back. All right? Some of you don't know 23andMe, that's okay. Don't know how reliable it is, but apparently I'm 67% Irish. But for a woman to be known, a woman of low moral standards, a pagan woman, to be the ancestor to kings, ancestor to cities, whole cities, there he is that will produce the king, there he is that will produce the savior, this is a big deal. Something she did brings her this honor. For a woman to be named in the New Testament genealogies, big deal. It is a big deal. I don't say that sarcastically. Women don't typically get that kind of clout. They don't get that sort of status. So we have to ask, what is so special about Rahab? In all of Matthew's genealogy, by the way, only three women are named. Ruth, Tamar, Rahab. Guess who's not named? Bathsheba, but she's inferred. Every other woman in the entire history of the house of David forgotten, except Tamar, Ruth, and Rahab. And we, we, we know they're talking about Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, the mother of King Solomon, arguably the greatest king in all of Israel. His mom doesn't get mentioned, but Rahab does. So why should we, why should we care about Rahab? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 11.31, By faith, Rahab welcomed the spies in peace and did not perish with those who disobeyed. What that tells us is there were others within the city of Jericho who disobeyed when Rahab did not. Hmm, That's kind of an interesting thought. James, by the way, the brother of Jesus, he writes, James 2.25, in the same way, was not Rahab also justified by works in receiving the messenger, messengers and sending them out by a different route? Rahab, according to James, he's appealing to this faith without works idea. And whose name does he draw upon to prove his point but his own ancestor, Rahab? Her faith produced works that honored God. She's a woman of faith. She's a woman who is incredibly vital to the history of the nation of Israel. And as she is an ancestor to Christ, she's incredibly vital to our history as believers. So again, who is she? What's her origin story? What does Scripture tell us about this great woman of faith? What can we learn from that story? And most of all, how does she point us to Christ? Well, her story actually begins long before we pick it up in Joshua chapter 2. We don't know if she was born in Jericho, if she was sold into Jericho or something. We don't know a lot about her other than what Joshua begins to tell us. And actually, it's believed Samuel wrote the book of Joshua. 
So what he tells us as we begin chapter 2, it says, Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two men as spies from the Acacia Grove, saying, go and scout the land, especially Jericho. Now, you don't have to underline this in your Bible, but tuck that away in your mind. Especially Jericho. So they left, and they came to the house of a woman named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelite men have come here tonight to investigate the land. When the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab and said, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, for they came to investigate the entire land. The woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So she said, Yes, the men did come to me, but I didn't know where they were from. At nightfall, when the city gate was about to close, the men went out, and I don't know where they were going. Chase after them quickly, and you can catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them among the stalks of flax and she had arra- that she had arranged on the roof. The men pursued them along the road to the fords of the Jordan, and as soon as they left to pursue them, the city gate was shut. Okay, so she saves the lives of the two spies. Not only does she save their lives, they are comfortable with her. In fact, the next verse begins, before the men fell asleep. How many of you know when you're not comfortable somewhere, you don't fall asleep, right? If your life is under threat, if you're in danger, it's hard to sleep. But they felt safe under Rahab. Now, a little background before we go on, and this is something we need to know. This is why I said tuck this away in your mind about Jericho. Jericho was a city that was fortified. We always think this great big wall because we've seen veggie tales and we think this thing's huge. But there's actually two walls that circle around Jericho. The outside wall is six feet thick. The inside wall is 12 feet thick. And between those two walls, they would put timber down and people would build houses in between the walls. In fact, that's going to come up in the story. So this isn't just some city. This is a fortress. This is a big deal place, okay? Joshua sends these men to scope out Jeru- uh, sorry, to scope out Jericho because they're not going further if they can't take this city somehow. In fact, Joshua's attack on Jericho is going to have to be something miraculous. It's going to have to be something that God intervenes in, shows his power, his faithfulness, and above all, he will show his mercy to the household of Rahab. But before any of that happens, these spies have to make it back to Joshua. So we read on verses 8 and 9, before the men fell asleep, we touched on that already, she went up on the roof. And said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings, you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart. And everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now, please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kindness to my father's family. No, she doesn't say show kindness to me. Show kindness to my father's family because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, 
and all who belong to them and save us from death. The men, who, the men answered her, we will give our lives for yours. If you don't report our mission, we will show kindness and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us the land. Now, as our main text goes, we're going to leave off there. We're going to touch all around it and back in it. But so we're not done examining what happens to her just yet. We're just getting started. But the main thing I hope you take away from this, the one thing I hope you remember when you leave today is Rahab is an example to us of saving faith. Rahab is an example of a faith that saves. Paul told the Ephesians, you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift from God, not from works, so that no one can boast. She's not saved by what she does. She's saved by her faith, and her faith is why she does it. As James said, her faith produced works. Her and her whole household are saved from the wrath of God. They are then grafted in to God's chosen people. If you've ever read the book of Romans, that sounds very Romans-y, doesn't it? There's a lot of Romans in the life of Rahab. The first thing we really observe about her, about her character, the character of Rahab is her faith. Read back in verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, so she said, yes, the men did come to me, but I did not know where they were from. We're going to get this out of the way, right? Out of the gate, okay? Yes, Rahab is a liar, okay? Rahab lies. Guess what? Rahab's not a Christian. Rahab's not even a Jewish person. She bears false witness. She's kind of, one would almost think, a pagan, right? Because she is. She's from a city of pagans. So we shouldn't expect her to do great righteous things right away. She could have been truthful, sure. She could have deceived them by omitting the truth. She could have done this thing. Little kids will do this. Well, I don't see them right now. You know, as they look at the ceiling and all around, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see any of those guys, you know. Try to tell the truth by, by being deceptive in another way. But Rahab's lie is not an excuse for us to lie. Any more than Rahab's profession is an excuse for us to take up that profession. All right? She's not commended ever for her sinful behavior. Nowhere is she commended for that, but she is commended for her faith. She is spared because of her faith. She's remembered because of her faith. She hides the two spies from a wicked king who rules over a wicked city. Now, this is actually ironic, and it paints a picture, a very small picture, but it still paints a picture of God's sense of humor. If you really understand the name Rahab and where else it shows up in Scripture and what it's typically used to describe within the Bible. We see it twice in the book of Job. Job, by the way, was written long before bricks were laid for the walls of Jericho. It's one of the oldest books, if not the oldest book of the Bible. Uh, she, her name pops up in Psalms, Isaiah. Uh, there's a slight change in the Hebrew, but it's still Rahab. Job 9.13 says, God does not hold back his anger. Rahab's assistants cringe in fear beneath him. And that's that's referring, the hymn is referring to Rahab, I believe. Rahab isn't a, it's almost like the little kid that says, isn't that a girl's name, right? Hmm. Job 26, 12. By his power, and this is talking about God, he stirred the sea, 
And by his understanding, he crushed Rahab. Now, God's not crushing this woman from Jericho. He's not crushing some lady. This is actually in reference to a sea serpent, much like we talk about the Leviathan. We talk about the behemoth from the book of Job. Those are the great creatures. We, you know, when you hear the young earth and the old earth guys arguing, was it a dinosaur? Was it an alligator? We don't know. Was it an elephant? Was it a woolly mammoth? We don't know. Well, it's, it's a, an agent of chaos is how the Hebrew people would have seen it. This great sea serpent. And yet from the chaos of war, this Rahab rises up. In other passages, that name is meant to refer to Egypt. In Psalm 87, 4, it says, I will make a record of those who know me, Rahab, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush. Each one was born there. Or Isaiah 30, verse 7, Egypt's help is completely worthless. Therefore, I will call her Rahab who just sits. And that's also a little joke on, on God's behalf. See, God does have a sense of humor, and it, he, point, he pulls that out in this story, I think, because it's, it's a great sense of irony that this woman so fondly remembered everywhere else, shares the same name as a sea monster of chaos, yet she's going to be an ancestor to the Prince of Peace. She's an ally. She's a grandmother to Israel's king, and yet shares the same name as Israel's greatest enemy, Egypt. That's the beauty of God's sovereignty. That's also a testament to his faithfulness. It's also a testament to her faith. That's, that's just the beauty of Scripture, actually, how it harmonizes and sings to us. A beautiful story. But she hides these men, and we have to ask why. Well, she tells them in verse 9, she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. Now, in that text, if you look in your Bible, the word Lord is in all caps. And most of you know this, but when that happens in Scripture... That's because that is the actual name of God. In fact, the LSB translation says it. I know that Yahweh has given you the land. Her faith is not in the Israelite army. Her faith is not in Israel at all. Her faith is in their God. And she knows him by name. Church, the same is true for us. Who's your God? Do you know him by name? Do you know what he's like? One thing I would challenge you to do today Make a note in your notes or or whatever. But when you get home, write down and write down just 20 characteristics of God, things you believe about him. If you can't do 20, do 10. If you can't do 10, do five. But I promise you, as you do these things, the top five beliefs you have about God, you will see reflected in your own life. You've all heard me say this because your life imitates your theology. What you believe about him will be reflected in how you treat other people. People who bear the image of God. They are made in the Imago Dei, the same as you are. It will change how you view yourself, how you shape these things. Now, some of the things you believe about God may not be right. Some of the things you believe about God may be something you can't find any scripture for or any basis in the word of God. If that's the case, scratch those things out. But we carry those. We have those sometimes. They're something that was planted in us early on in our Christian walk, and they may need to be pruned. They may need to be taken out. It's a great illustration of this. This guy walks up on a circus, and he's, he's walking through the wild animals, and he's just loving the, the tigers and the bears and their cages. He comes across the greatest elephant he's ever seen. This thing is huge. And it's tied to a little bitty light pole by 
a rope that's not very thick. In fact, in, re- in relation to this elephant, it would be like tying a grown man to a stick by kite string. I mean, it is a huge elephant. And he's just standing here and he's just completely in awe. Why is this thing not uprooting this light pole? Why is this thing not just snapping that rope? And up walks the trainer. And he says, can I help you? And he says, man, I am just, why is he not? Why is he standing right there? What is keeping this elephant from stampeding through the city? It can't be that little rope. And he says, oh, it's the rope. He says, I'm really glad you asked about that. Nobody ever really seems to notice. You see, when this elephant was small, I took this very same rope and I tied it around him and I tied it to a light pole. And no matter how hard he kicked, he wasn't strong enough to push back. He wasn't strong enough to pull up the light post then. And and pretty soon he just got tired of kicking against it. And so now he believes this rope is so strong, it'll it'll hold him down. So it's kind of neat. It's just something that he's believed for so long, he believes it to be true. He doesn't even question it. Many Christians are the same way. We have beliefs that we've held for so long, and when they get challenged, we'll kick against the challenge. We won't test the rope, and by that I mean test it with Scripture. We won't question it. We dare not kick against the kite string. That's that's what we've known for so long. You know, a lot gets made about deconstruction. There's a, That's a buzzword in Christianity right now, that there's deconstructing your faith. Well, the problem is, and most of this is through Christian musicians and, and former Christian celebrities, the problem is that many times they will do their deconstructing through the lens of culture and not through the lens of God's Word. So I challenge you, when you make your list today and you're writing out these things, these, these beliefs you have about God, compare it with Scripture. Not what you think Scripture should say, but what Scripture actually says. BibleGateway.com, great resource for looking these things up. To do that, write it up. Post it to social media if you want. Tape it to your refrigerator, but go through it line by line. What does the Bible confirm about this belief? What is it I believe about God? And if it doesn't affirm it in Scripture, cross it out. It doesn't belong. For example, you might say, well, God hates me because I'm a sinner. Cross that out. Write in John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God doesn't love you because you're a sinner, by the way. He loves you because you are meant to belong to him. God loves you because you are, you are someone who bears his image. And you may be in rebellion to him, but he's drawing, himself, he's drawing you back to himself. He loves you, and it's time to right that relationship with your heavenly Father. God wants to save you. Psalm 3 tells us salvation belongs to the Lord. And I know I'm kind of rabbit trailing a little bit this morning, but like Rahab, we have to challenge the things we believe. She heard about this God. She heard about what he'd done. And she was a pagan. Like I said, she worshiped idols. But along comes this story about this people and this God who saves. Rahab had faith in a God who saves. That was earth-shattering to her. All she knew were the, the gods of wrath, the gods of anger and bitterness and fertility goddesses and so on and so forth. She goes on in Joshua 2.10, For we have heard how the Lord, and again, that's God's name, dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings, you completely destroyed across the Jordan. Now, pause just a second. That all happened under Moses. He's not leading anymore. He's gone. But even still, people didn't know about Moses. They did know about Yahweh, his God. 
In fact, if they did know about Moses, they would not have seen him as some kind of prophet. They would have seen him as maybe a a warlord, maybe a military-minded man of combat, somebody who was trained up in Pharaoh's house and the acts of war. If anything, they might have seen him as some type of Merlin, uh, war wizard type of guy, you know, because he does all these miracles and things. But it's not Moses she knows by name. Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so Rahab takes two and two and she puts them together. And she begins to understand. She develops this belief. She begins to develop a theology. She says, if I serve this God, this God who saves people out of Egypt, then possibly, perhaps, he will save my family from his wrath as he saved the people on their way out of Egypt. See, the people of this land, they are very aware that Israel escaped Egypt, and they know how they escaped Egypt because that was 40 years ago. Israel's been out walking in the desert. News has traveled. Word has spread. They know about Pharaoh and his armies. Later in chapter 9, the Gibeonites are going to put on disguises, and they're going to come to Joshua, and they're going to hide who they are, and they're going to kind of trick Israel into this treaty. And when they're asked about it, they replied to Joshua, they said, your servants have come from a faraway land because of the reputation of Yahweh your God, for we've heard of his fame, not Moses, not Joshua. Whose fame? God's. We've heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two Amorite kings beyond the Jordan, King Sihon of Heshbon and King Og of Bashan, who was in Ashtoreth. So it's not a stretch to assume that Rahab has come to a similar conclusion. She's figured it out. If God will rescue these people, there's a chance she'll rescue me. And that little bit of faith saves her and her household. But how many of you know with faith comes fear? Sometimes when we act in faith, it means we have to also overcome fear. Verse 11 in Joshua chapter 2, When we heard this, we lost heart. And everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Yahweh your God is in heaven above and on earth below. I've already touched on this a little bit. In other words, your God's not like the gods of Jericho. Your God's not a statue. He's bigger than the earth itself. He's huge. The gods of Jericho were these little statues, little baubles, They'd put on a shelf. They'd have to move them when they dust, for crying out loud. But this God will move rivers, will move the sea. He will do amazing things for his people. Meanwhile, we've got to clean our idols if they sit too long. We've got to move them, rearrange them around the table. And if your God, if Yahweh is that big, if he's powerful enough to shake off the chains of slavery to Egypt, he's big enough to knock down the walls of Jericho. So she let them down by a rope through the window since she lived in a house that was built into the wall of the city. Ah, there we go. Now we see she's really concerned. Because to get into Jericho, they got to knock down the wall. That's where her home's at. The way Jericho was built, by the way, wasn't just some city surrounded by walls. It was a city built on a hill. And the only way you could take it was if you mounted an assault climbing up a steep hill. So by the time you get to the top, you're going to be tired. Not to mention, they're going to be throwing rocks. They're going to be shooting at you, right? 
When Israel marches around the walls, as seen in the Veggie Tales hit, Josh and the Big Wall, they're not just walking around a city, they're walking around a mountain. And they're out of bow shot, they're out of range. That's how they're able to do that. You ever just stop and think, if I'm one of the guys in Jericho, I'm picking up a bow and arrow and I'm just picking people off as they walk around, but we don't hear of that. Why? They're out of range. They're at the bottom of the hill. So the only way to take this city is by climbing that hill, and then you have to knock down a wall, and then you've got to get through a thicker wall. Not just one wall, but two. The only way to take that mountain, to take that city, is if God moves, if a miracle happens, and both walls fall. I don't know about you, but man, just in that part of the story, that's pretty relatable. We can, we can surely think about times we've had to fight a battle uphill where it didn't seem like nothing I did matter, nothing you did matter, nothing we did mattered, and maybe finally we take the hill, but there's a wall in the way. And you knock that wall down, and you, you work hard, and you overcome that wall. And what's waiting? A bigger wall. But many times, we should be just like the Israelites and march on in obedience. And when God gives the order, shout, take the hill. Many times, he's the only one who can fight that battle. So press on, be faithful. Like Isaiah told Ahaz in Isaiah 7-9, if you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. But inside the city, inside the walls, Rahab knows somehow, if Israel's going to take this city, the wall has to come down. Or, option B, God's wrath is going to hit this city and clean it from the inside out, much like the plagues of Egypt. She's sitting there thinking, you know, I don't want anybody to die. I don't want a thousand frogs in my basement or anything like that. This is reason to fear. This is reason to be nervous. But like I said last week, any relationship built on fear is not meant to last. So what do the spies do? They bring comfort. They offer her some assurance. They try to ease her fear. Verses 17 and 18, Joshua 2, the men said to her, we will be free from this oath you made us swear unless when we enter the land, you tie this scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down. Bring your father, mother, brothers, and all your family, uh, all your father's family into your house. Now, I'm sure you've seen the, the bulletin this morning and you've seen the little cord, right? The little ribbon. Right? This is a good reminder. Keep in your Bible God's faithfulness. And I'll tell you why. I'll show you. The word for cord that's used here, why not a rope? Why not a string? Why use the word cord? Have you ever thought of that? Well, the word for cord that's used is the Hebrew word tikwa, which is really not that fascinating until you understand that second part of the word what it means is to wait in hope. Wah. Be patient. The type of word that a mother would say to their kids, when's dad getting home? Qua. When, when can we have a snack? Qua. Right? Wait. Be patient. It'll happen. It's coming. My mom had a word very similar in English, after a while. Right? What's that mean? Well, after a while. Dad'll be home after a while. After what while? After how long is a while? You know, there's no, don't know, but it's going to happen. That's what qua is. 
The idea of the cord is to ease her fear in the middle of the waiting. The idea of the cord is to ease her fear in the middle of the battle. Now you might be looking at it and you might say, well, it's red, it's scarlet. Why, why use that? Because deer hunting blaze orange was not yet invented. No. That made, some people believe that. That's probably not true. Red because it was the same color as the blood that was over the doors at Passover. It symbolizes God's wrath is going to pass over her house. When the walls of Jericho fall, one section is sure to be left standing. Joshua said to the two men who, who had scouted the land, go to the woman's house and bring her out of there and all who are with her just as you swore to her. Well, how will they know which, woman's, which house is hers? Because it's the part of the wall that's still standing with the cord in the, in the window. Remember the walls came tumbling down? But one section stood. The cord's the same color to remind us the shed blood of Christ on the cross. And those who are under his blood are no longer under the wrath of God, but under mercy and grace. All heaven for all eternity sings of this. When we took our Revelation class, you might remember this, Revelation 5, 9, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because, speaking of the Lamb of God, you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe, every language, people, and nation. Like Rahab, those who are in Christ are saved from God, from his just wrath. We are saved by God, by his sacrificial death on a cross, and we are saved for God, for his delight and his praise and his purpose. And for all eternity, church, we will join with the angels and the saints in heaven and sing for all eternity. He is the Lamb of God. Worthy, worthy, the Lamb of God. It is faith that drove Rahab to hang that cord in her window. And it's faith in Christ that causes a relationship with the Father to begin that will bring us into his presence for all eternity. With that said, we have to understand that in some context, Rahab hung that cord and the walls stood. Rahab hung that cord and that day the wall didn't fall down. And it didn't fall down the next day. And it didn't fall down the next day. The fact is those spies will hide in the hill country for about three days after Rahab lets them down and hangs that cord. Then they're going to make their way to Joshua. That probably took at least another day. We're not told how long it takes. Joshua 2.22 tells us they made their way to Joshua. Meanwhile, the scarlet, the scarlet cord hangs in the window. They get to Joshua, but they're on the other side of the Jordan. So he's going to lead the people over the river. Or I'm sorry, he's going to lead the people to the river. That takes three more days. So they're going to wait. The Lord's going to speak to Joshua. Joshua 3, 7, the Lord spoke to Joshua. Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so they will know that I will be with you just as I was with Moses. Church, hear me on this. The leadership of Joshua meant nothing as long as the people wanted him to be Moses. But when they follow him as they follow Moses, that's when they begin to move forward. I'll say that again. The leadership of Joshua meant nothing as long as the people wanted him to be Moses. But when they follow him, as they follow Moses, they begin to move forward. So the Lord, as he separated the Red Sea for Moses, now for Joshua, he splits the River Jordan and the people cross on dry land. And it's been almost a week at least since Rahab hung the cord in her window. And the Lord had Israel, again keeping it G-rated, they honor the Abrahamic covenant. And that took at least another three days for the men to 
rest up because that generation hadn't honored that covenant in 40 years while they wandered the desert. And all the while, the cord hangs in Rahab's window. Then the people celebrate Passover. That's going to take at least a day. And the next day, they eat roasted grain and leavened bread from the produce of the land. And the manna stops coming. And the scarlet cord hangs in the window. The people of Israel are told to march. And they're going to march for six days while the scarlet cord hangs in the window. But on the seventh day, all the people shout. The trumpets blow and the walls fall, except for the part where there hangs the scarlet cord in the window. But that's not the end of Rahab's story. She had faith, she overcame fear, but God gives her a family. I mentioned her lineage, I mentioned her family line already, but here in Joshua, we really see its beginning. Verse 25 of Joshua 6. However, Joshua spared Rahab, her father's family, and all who belonged to her because she hid the messengers Joshua had sent to spy on Jericho, and she still lives in Israel today. Is Rahab immortal? No. Rahab doesn't live for thousands of years. Rahab eventually dies. How does she live in Israel today? Through her family, through her children and her children's children. Her husband's name is a, a man called Salma or Salmon. And we're not told much about who he is. Some theorize he's one of the spies who stayed in her home. And that's kind of a a romanticized, almost Disney version of that story. Uh, We don't really know. The first time he's ever mentioned is in the fourth chapter of the book of Ruth. But someone took Rahab as a wife. Someone took this woman who many men would have looked at and said, "Mm -mm, nope, nope, I know where she came from. I know what she used to do. I don't want that in my house. Jewish tradition says that Joshua took her for a wife, but then he died and Salmon married her. Don't see that in Scripture anywhere. It also tells us she was a beautiful woman. She was a woman of great beauty who had entered in her profession at the age of 10. Pretty or not, that's a rough life. And that leaves its mark on, on someone. And there isn't much in Scripture to back up that she was physically beautiful. I know that culture, and time, standards of beauty change. But even whenever you look at the name Rahab, the name Rahab is not a name that conveys beauty or any kind of attractiveness. In fact, it means wide. It means broad, as in broad-shouldered. I don't say this as a joke, but that's probably more of a comment towards her dress size than anything else, or something else more demeaning. My point is, there's not a lot about Rahab that a man would find attractive, especially a Jewish man. Not Keep in mind, it wasn't that long ago, they all got in trouble for taking pagan wives, Midianite wives. So who wants to risk it, right? Anybody who marries this woman is not going to get some great dowry. Her entire city just fell apart. They're not going to make a great name for themselves, at least by all logic. There's nothing about Rahab that an Israelite man would find attractive or worthy for marriage. In his retelling of the story, Josephus chooses to call her an innkeeper. Talk about making it G-rated. But that's not really the case because James and, and the writer of Hebrews make it very clear in their choice of Greek what she was. But even if that were true, there's no city to keep an inn at anymore. So what would compel a Jewish man to to take such a woman like this into his home, 
to take care of her, to provide for her and her children. Because she's a woman of honor, get serious. Come on, you know what she used to do, right? Because she's a hero, she just committed treason and sold out her entire city. What about her and her entire history makes you think she will be loyal to a man? It was because what made her attractive to Salmon was the fact that she submitted her life to God first. She belonged to Yahweh before she ever hung that cord in the window. The moment she took those spies in and covered for them, she'd made her choice. She acted in faith. She was under God's protection. Any any foreign woman was not to be mistreated under the Hebrew law. You must not exploit, Exodus 22-21, not exploit a resident alien or oppress him since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 24-17, do not deny justice to an alien or a fatherless child and do not take a widow's garment as security. Salmon or Salmon, when he saw Rahab, he saw a woman of saving faith. He saw a woman who would put her life on the line to help Israel. And in his mind, I guarantee you, he thought, if she's loyal to Yahweh, she'll be loyal to his law. And if she's loyal to his law, she'll be loyal to me as a wife. And so because of this, she's brought into the tribe of Judah. She's married into the line of kings, and she'll be an ancestor to the Messiah. This foreign woman who submitted her life to God saved her family, saved herself, saved her family line. And because of her, ultimately, all will be saved through Christ, who submit their lives in the same way she did, in faith to him. I'm going to ask uh, Georgette to come back and play in just a moment, but I would ask you today, challenge yourself. Where is my faith? How do I view God? How is that reflected in my life? What does my faith drive me to do? Who am I serving in faith? Rahab is an example of how faith saves, but how are we following that example? Maybe you're here, and maybe you feel like you're not Rahab. Well, we're not. Rahab was Rahab. We're taking the lesson we learned from her. But maybe you feel like you're that person marching around the wall. You're trying to be obedient, and you're ready to take the city. You're ready to shout. You're ready for the battle to be over. It could be very well God is doing something inside the city before the walls fall. It could be there's something you're not aware of, a change of heart happening within those around you. Something you're not ready for. Something you're unaware of. So I would tell you, just keep being obedient. Pray for strength. Pray for the Holy Spirit to lead you in obedience. And be ready to shout when it's time for the war. Be ready for the battle when it comes. Ask the Holy Spirit, search my heart, and challenge you this morning as we close in worship.
Here today and you're saying, I'm struggling in my faith, I'm struggling in my, my walk, I know who God is, I, I have an idea, but I need to know that I matter to Him. You do. Send His Son to die on a cross for your sins. If you're here and you're saying, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm the one beating my head against that wall, climb the mountain, and now I'm trying to take the thing down. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to pray for you. But don't leave here today questioning God's faithfulness. Because He is faithful. That red ribbon on your bulletin, put that in your Bible. And every day, put it on your fridge. Put it somewhere you're going to see it. Remind yourself, God is faithful. Because above all else, that's true. Will you stand with me this morning? I'm going to close in prayer. Father, today I pray that you are glorified. I pray that you strengthened our faith today. I pray that we understand, that we get a glimpse of, of what saving faith looks like. Father, I pray that as we, as we operate in faith, Lord, that, that we put our faith into action. And that we trust you. And Lord, the, sometimes... We don't have to fight the battle because you're fighting it. We just need to be obedient. We just need to take a step back and stand in faith. So, Father, I just pray that you continue to move. We know you'll show yourself to be faithful. Pray, Father, today you're glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.